all have a million ideas, but only a few entrepreneurs successfully turn ideas into millions. So what's the trick? Well, here's a hint. It takes a lot of work. There's a long road between an idea and a business. Want to learn about the basic tools you need to turn your idea into a thriving business? Well, stay tuned, because in this episode of Biz 503, we're going to break down how to move from concept to startup. I'm Kedma O, oh, Director of Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, and joining me as co-host is Leslie Hildula, Business Advisor and Adjunct Faculty at Portland Community College SBDC. Welcome. Hi, Kedma. Hi. So Leslie, welcome. And I would love for us to just learn a little bit more about you and your current role. Well, the SBDC works with all types of businesses, but I have the great good fun of working mostly with retail and restaurant businesses. And I'm working with people who have been in business for a long time and just want to run their business better and maybe take it up a notch, maybe have that second location. And I'm also working with a lot of people who are starting up. We just started a restaurant business builders program, and it's all about taking that concept to actually having a thriving, profitable business that supports you. So I'm always curious um, when I meet experts, how did you become an expert? <laughs> well, watching my family and go through a couple of bankruptcies okay, <laughs> and also put me through college and employ about 20 some people. I grew up in Klotzkanai. My father had a quail farm among many other businesses. So I, I have an attraction to serial entrepreneurs going way back. And is there anything that you, you could take away as that one lesson you learned while you were part of that experience? The tremendous amount of creativity and hard work that comes into play. Fantastic. So joining us now at the top of this episode, as we cover the nuts and bolts of early business planning, are Dave Barcos, startup consultant and founder at The Bridge Incubator. Hi, Dave. Morning, Leslie. Thank you. I guess we're in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and Ronnie Noyes, marketing coach at the DIY Marketing Center. Hi, Ronnie. Hey, Leslie. Glad to be here. So both of you have been working with startups. And one of the things that always comes up is the role of the business plan. I can't tell you how many of my <laughs> clients confess very guiltily that they don't have one. So what is your opinion about the necessity of a business plan? I think we give an awful lot of airplay to a business plan. And I think it becomes a huge barrier for most startups. It's much more important, especially in kind of the exponential times that we live in, to start getting some early market validation and to work with some lean tools that are available. And I say you work towards a business plan when you're ready for financing. So before we go to Ronnie, just a follow up, market validation? Absolutely. Figuring out that your idea is not just a good idea for you, but you can find people in the marketplace that are ready to pay for the service or product that you're going to develop and start to build out that tribe of people that will support it as it grows. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Dave, because that's exactly <laughs> what I believe as well. I think business plans are highly overrated. And as a matter of fact, I think that people shouldn't start a business without a viable marketing plan. And a marketing plan explains very simply where your business is going to come from. Where is the revenue coming from? I think even a greater problem is that people don't understand the whole concept of marketing. They think it's promotion. I want to share a definition of marketing that I think is going to make a lot of people feel relieved and empowered and happy. Because uh, if you look at the American Marketing Association's website, I think there's like an 82-word definition of marketing on the homepage. <laughs> oh, please spare me from that. Something simple that we can all put our arms around and get is that marketing is the exact science and subtle art of attracting, acquiring, and retaining great clients 
profitably. So not bad clients and not without profit. I mean, if you're a nonprofit, of course, they just have a little surplus. Maybe it's not actually profit. But that's what really drives a business. And if you don't have a marketing plan, you don't have a plan to generate revenue. And then you're really just somebody with an expensive hobby. Well, you know, this is really um, interesting. When I think about that, I think about some entrepreneurs may it may sound overwhelming for them. So, you know, when you talk about market validation, we have clients coming in all the time that say, you know, I've tested my product and my mother loves it, (laughs) my father loves it, and my sister loves it. So how far do we go with market validation to know that this is an idea that's going to work? Yeah, it's really a big thing. Um, People don't understand that support for being an entrepreneur in general, you're going to get a lot of pats on the back. People are going to say, oh my God, we're so excited that you're building a business. That's great. Or, you know, is this a good product? Um, And they're going to have friends and family around them that are going to be really supportive because they don't want to kind of tear things down. The idea that you find people that are in certain clusters that are ready to buy the product that you're developing or service that you're developing is really key. And there's tons of resources that you can either use online or you can actually build kind of your own momentum inside of certain groups with uh, with things like Meetup. Lots of avenues to really do that. I feel like I have to speak up on behalf of the business plan. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that business plans have to suit the audience. So if you're going for a million dollar bank loan, that's one kind of business plan, maybe with lots of marketing and pretty pictures. But it's also just a roadmap for the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And a key thing, I think, for that business plan is your sales forecast and your budget. Is this actually going to generate the kind of money that you need it to make? Yeah. I I think an important point that you make is some of the businesses that you mentioned earlier um, have a lot more conventional path to profit. And so there's an easy way to forecast some of those expenses and some of the returns that you can get out of that. One of the things that we talk a lot about with The Bridge and our organization is lean methodology. So the idea of a business model canvas, which causes you to go through a lot of those pieces of what are your cost of goods? What are you planning on selling to? Who are your markets? It becomes an important tool to help answer some of the same questions that a business plan does, but it does it in a lean way that becomes iterative that you continually go back to, whereas most business plans really end up a little bit on the shelf after they've approached a financier. So as I'm listening to this, Ronnie, I'm curious to know, just building on this, how do you know when your idea has become a business? Do you wake up and say, oh, now it's a business? (laughs) Or is there a certain thing like, I'm going to go and file a business license. Now I'm a business. How do you know that you've actually become a business? You become a business when you've invested in it Mm -hmm. and you invest your time, resources, money, uh, reputation, whatever it is. The majority of my clients, though, are really small businesses. So they're typically uh, women-owned, home-based, mission-driven sort of businesses. And they don't have a big business plan. They don't have investors. What they have is a fire in their belly and a thousand bucks in the bank. And they say, how can I replace my 50, 60, $70,000 a year job income with a small business that allows me to live my dream and live my life? And the way to start that is figure out how are you going to sell whatever it is you have? Because if you can't sell your product, service, information, or experience, you don't have a business. Yeah. And I think this question will go for both of you because you mentioned the majority of your clients are small business. So according to the Small Business Administration, the definition of small business is 500 employees or less. So I'm thinking in my mind, wow, maybe she's dealing with 50 employees, 100 employees. So here's my question. What are the sizes typically that you're both seeing? And then how do they manage initial funding considering it could be a challenge if they are a small business? 
totally understand about the mm-hmm. technical definition of small business. But I get mine aren't even micro business. They're solopreneurs for the most part. And almost all of them, without exception, are self-funded, either bootstrapped or from their own funds. I mean, usually savings, sometimes credit cards, which mm. I know isn't a good thing. Back in the day when I was working in the corporate world, we had different models for testing our concepts and we spun off different business units, which again had to prove their concept that that they could make money so that they wouldn't use too many resources of the main corporation. Even though it looks different, the principles are exactly the same. It's prove your concept, determine your sales channel, and then pull the trigger. Mm. Yeah, those are great points. Absolutely. I think you are in the process of proving things out. And I think that goes back to one of the, the best definition that I've heard of a startup which is that it isn't a company. Companies execute on a business strategy and a business model that they've developed. A startup, it's a temporary group of people that are developing a repeatable, profitable business model. So that's where you get into people that need to coach you through the viability of a business idea and start to decide if you need to pivot or move off of a certain point and change a little subtle nuance of what you're trying to do to build the business. I think that's one of the arguments against the business plan is that there's so much that's in flux when you're starting a scalable or a high impact business that there's too much that's fluid and you need to be able to work in a lean way to to be able to change those things. So bottom line, there comes that point where an entrepreneur has to quit their day job and commit. How do you know when it's that time? If you're not making money, it's probably a bad time to quit. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, if you're really an entrepreneur and what you, I I look at, there's sort of a hierarchy. There's, you're an employee, then you're a freelancer, and then you're a business owner. But if you're an entrepreneur, then you're investing in businesses Mm -hmm. and you don't actually have to work in your business to be an investor. You can um, bring an idea to market and hire other people to run it for you. And I I came from an entrepreneurial family as well, Leslie, and that's what my folks did. It was, it was really exciting and fun, you know. So there's the businesses that you can start on the side while you're working full time. And then there's businesses that you start as a part time business and build up that business model and you're making money. And then you think, if I could just quit my day job, then I could commit myself 100 percent and actually build it into a full time income thing. Exactly. I have a client who's an engineer and she had an idea for a certain type of barbershop, but she's not a, a hair cutter. So what she did is she opened a barbershop and she's still working full time. Um, as an engineer, but she's hired a barber to run her shop and she wants to develop the idea so that she can franchise. So she's an entrepreneur, even though she has a day job. You know, as I'm listening to this and all the incredible work you're doing for business owners, I'm curious to know what mistakes you have made as business owners that got you to a place where you could speak on that. It's only an hour show. (laughs) I don't know if I can say. (laughs) Um, You know, I think... There's been, there's been a lot of mistakes along the way. You know, I've been a part of two, I would say, successful startups. Um, one was in the 80s when we didn't call them startups. We just called them a new business. Um, it was in the technology field. And the second was actually one of the ones that brought me over to Vancouver. And I think my equity inside of that can pay for a cup of coffee because they just hit the NASDAQ at $4 and something. Um, so... The entrepreneurial journey is about making those mistakes. It is about learning from them. But it's, um, we talk about passion a lot. And one of the things I say is that passion is overrated because passion can cause you to stick with something when it is not viable and it is not reasonable. You have to be open to learning from your mistakes, learning from other people that are giving you valid input. And oftentimes it's hard to, to learn who to listen to and stick to your guns. 
I agree. I think passion is absolutely overrated. I prefer to think in terms of commitment. Mm. So how committed are we? I ask my clients and the same thing I ask myself, am I willing to knock on doors to make this business work? But also I find that a relentless focus on money keeps me on the straight and narrow in terms of the business. So as I'm listening, uh, I love all this great information. If I had an idea and I'm listening right now, what's my 30 day run? What can I do in the next 30 days to make a difference with this idea that's in my mind right now? What a great question. Test your concept. You can (laughs) put up a one page website on Weebly for free and then you can get $25 in Google ads and drive people to the page for some information and you can really test ideas immediately and cheaply. Yeah, Uh, I love that. I think um, I was listening actually to the podcast from last week and we were talking about keeping your idea a secret, right? It's a tendency among early stage uh, startup people to say it's a secret. And one of the comments was, if giving your idea away in a five minute conversation is going to put it at risk, then you probably need to rethink your idea. So I think that's a really valid point, Ronnie, is is get it out there and use tools that are available to start gathering some of that feedback. You just scared the audience because you told us to rethink the idea. What does that mean? That means we're going back to the drawing board? No, it means prove it out. And, and sometimes that feels really, really risky. I was sitting with an entrepreneur who had a dating app um, and they were technical, right, in background. So they had built out a prototype and they were sure this was going to be the next best success. And they were talking about how they needed to get $350,000 for development money. And they hadn't tested the idea and they hadn't proved out the concept at all. And it was based on something very kind of tenuous when you look at the marketplace. And I said, so how many people have you talked to? And they said, well, I really haven't talked to any. My friends think it's a great idea. We were sitting in a coffee shop and I said, there are 35 people in here. I will give you $50,000 if by the end of the day, you come back to me with 100 people who give you some sort of opinion on your application. I said, what would you do? He said, well, I would probably set up a survey. I said, five o'clock today, 100 people. He said, well, I do a Facebook page. I said, five o'clock today, right? And that's one of the things that we don't do as entrepreneurs is we don't get used to putting ourselves at risk that way and walking up to somebody in a coffee shop saying, look, you know what? I've got a great idea. I'd like to bounce it off of you. You have to be able to share your idea. You have to be able to get it out there to prove that validation. Love that, Ronnie. There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who really are in love with their ideas, but they're not in love with the execution. And you're (laughs) absolutely right, Dave. Yes. Do it today. Figure it out today. So I have one last thing that I heard from a John Gorman talking about how he researches a concept and he's got Tastian Alder and Tastian Sons and Tor Bravo. And he said one week he actually went to 75 different restaurants and to study how they did it, how they did their setup, look at best practices, putting that time into actually researching by being there with businesses similar to your own and seeing how do they do it. I'm really surprised at how many people want to enter a marketplace and have absolutely no idea how it works. (laughs) I have a lot of experience in the hobby games and comics marketplaces, and people come to me with their idea for the next great superhero, which is going to be a movie, and they're going to be a kajillionaire tomorrow, but they don't know how the business works. And they haven't bothered, and all that stuff is available online. It's easy peasy to figure that stuff out, but they haven't even put in the time to research to find out is the market growing or shrinking, and how much do you actually get paid for a comic book that costs $2, and what's the process and the, and the timeline? And they, they have nothing except this idea that they're in love with, and they, they don't let the rubber hit the road to be able to take it to reality, and it just takes work and action. You know, and as I'm listening to both of you with work, so if you had to give us the five top points on how to make sure that this business does not succeed, 
What would that be for you guys? <laughs> so how to fail? How to fail. Be completely ignorant of your marketplace and of your market space. So who are your competitors? Don't know a darn thing about them because you don't need to. Um, number two, don't get connected with anybody who's a, an influencer in your market because they can't help you at all or make any connections. Um, don't have a marketing plan so that you don't have any idea how to forecast sales, how to price your product, how to position it and how to promote it. Um, yeah, and uh, work yourself into an absolute frenzy so that you show up like a crazy homeless person when you talk to people who might have money. That's only four <laughs> tips, but I'm sure Dave's got plenty. Dave? I'm, yeah, I'm going to second yours. I, I, I love every one of those. I think the other, the other main thing is it's a sure sign of failure if you become too enamored with your solution to the issue. And don't start to pay attention to the factors that you're finding when you take it out into the marketplace. If you think your solution is the best, that's great. We want that pride. But if you do it in ignorance, that's going to lead you down a, a pretty bad path. And make everybody sign an NDA that you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm laughing as I listen to you guys. Uh, that's pretty incredible. So can you guys, one of you walk us through like a, a real life, no names mentioned, but a real life entrepreneur that you worked with and sort of give us the steps of how they went from a, an idea that maybe you didn't think was good. Maybe you thought this doesn't have any legs and it was, I like to say, uh, like Lori, um, zero to hero. So it actually turned out to be something that was fantastic in the market. Do you want to go first, Dave? Um, sure. Last year, we ran an accelerator program and we had five companies, um, some of which came in and I was a little tenuous about whether they were going to you know, be, be solid. Um, we had some people that hit some pivots. But one of the people that's come out of there is a mushroom jerky company, Michael Pan. Uh, he's phenomenal. And this is somebody that we looked at originally and he was in the marketplace. He had some traction, but through that accelerator process, what we found was that he had a larger mission, which was bringing international flavors to the world. So he's got an incredible story of how he found the mushroom jerky through his family in Malaysia and started distributing it. And I think when we first started, he was in about 60 companies. Um, and now we're working at bringing that operation on shore. He's now in 90 some odd stores phenomenal thing. And we're talking about getting him in front of some investment that can help scale him. So yeah, mushroom jerky, you kind of go, hmm. Yeah. And hmm. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely amazing the traction that we're finding for something like that. And it tastes good. Oh, it's amazing. Okay, cool. Honey? Okay. So mine's a much smaller scale. <laughs> um, and it probably sounds familiar to a lot of people. I, I helped a gal who later in life, after she retired, decided she wanted to be a coach and help people but she had no idea how to create the business or if her idea even had traction because she's a very specific type of coach. Um, she coaches nurses who have a holistic philosophy. So how different is that? So we tested that idea and she's actually the one who put up a, a little Weebly free page and did $25 in Google advertising and created a list from which then she created a program within 24 days, which was amazing that she sold um, about a hundred people into a, uh, a training, Wow, which was just yeah. astonishing. I had no idea it was going to work that well. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's really difficult inside of the medical field too. Mm -hmm. That's, that's great. And so with these people, when they're in that beginning stage, what kind of initial funding did they use? So we have 25 bucks with that one. But, so, but I told this gal, I said, you don't need a full website. You don't need a logo. You don't need all the branding. I cannot tell you how many people come to me after spending $5,000 on websites and branding, and they still don't have a client. 
and they don't yeah. know who they're going to they're going to um, sell to. The biggest mistake I think in a lot of small business startups is you have a product or an idea or an experience that nobody wants, and so then that, that becomes a marketing problem. There should never be a marketing problem. There should always yeah. be a hungry market that you've identified before you invest in the business. Yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, I think. As individual people, we have these perceptions of how we start a business. And so, and what we do is we look at it from the outside. So we see the trappings. We think it has to be the website. We think it has to be the marketing plan. We think it has to be uh, the office space, right? The employees, right? We have these view from the outside. And what we don't understand is how those companies got there. And that's the startup journey is to figure out how to make that scalable in, in a way that's substantially going to sustain the company when it grows. How to start that business in your garage or your second bedroom. It is. There's, it's a real story for a reason, because that's where most of them do start out. And did you know that Fred Meyer started at a food cart? Wow. I mean, like a wheelbarrow. <laughs> I was probably very young then. I think. <laughs> that's, so fantastic. So Dave and Ronnie, thanks for the great insight. Stay tuned. We'll tap into questions about the personal side of entrepreneurship after our short break. You're listening to Biz 503, the podcast for small businesses, startups, and anyone who wants to turn their idea into income. Biz 503 on PRP. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Leslie Hildula of PCC's Small Business Development Center, co-hosting with Ked Mau, director of the SBDC over at Mount Hood Community College. Thanks. Today on Biz 503, we're covering how to put rubber to the road and turn an idea into a seedling startup. In this segment of the show, we're going to talk about transitioning to the entrepreneur lifestyle. With us still on the show is Ronnie Noyes of the DIY Marketing Center. Hi, Ronnie. Hey, Leslie. And joining her is Matthew Feroz, owner at Nepo 42 and an instructor in the PCC's new Restaurant Business Builder Program. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Thanks for having me. And Matthew, where is Nepal 42? Uh, Northeast Portland and 42nd and Killingsworth. Fantastic. Welcome. So I'm excited about this segment. My first question is going to be work-life balance. So I happen to be a mom with three kids, all 12 and under, and I have a great idea. What do I do? How do I manage all my responsibilities and then try to birth an idea? Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it comes down to the way in which that you put your time together in order to make it so that you do have a little bit of time in order to work on your idea every single day and try and make it come to fruition in that little bit of time that you do have <laughs> along the way. And I think that those little bits, maybe it's late at night or really early in the morning, that those bits, you know, you get that programmed in your brain and then you start to really use those times very efficiently. So that's the way I look at it. I think another um, aspect of this is to manage expectations. Sometimes we think that we're, we have to bring our idea uh, to fruition immediately, and it can take a lot of time, especially if your time's strapped. There are a lot of tools you can use to manage your time. One thing that I suggest, especially for people who have so much in their head that they just can't uh, 
even talk about it because they get all wrapped up inside, is to write it all down and document it. Because after it's written down, then you can see where the holes are. And that way you don't have this endless loop of this, 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 you know, thing in your head. You get it written down and then you can, you can work with it. But as long as it's just this amorphous glob of non-language in your head, it's still in the idea. That can keep people awake for a long time, but it also keeps you out of action. It keeps you in that place of confusion and tension that I think is very counterproductive. And if you're disappointing your own expectations, then you might get a real sour feeling about that uh, business. And I said, manage your time, as Matt was saying, and then um, get it on paper. I heard manage your sleep because most moms (laughs) don't have time. So it's maybe reducing the amount of hours or finding, like you said, in the morning or in the evening. Or just choose not to have kids. So that's my strategy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So, so Matthew, when when you were looking at transitioning from being an employee, the chef, Mm -hmm. I imagine, to then running your own restaurant, was that like a day long journey or a 10 year journey? What, what, how did that look like for you? Uh, I kind of feel like a, I know this is like super tangenty, but uh, I kind of feel like it started in middle school selling <laughs> uh, candy that I would buy and then reselling it at school and making some money. And like that click was the thing that like clicked in my brain of like, oh, I should do this. <laughs> Not knowing what this was that I would end up doing, but that initial thing was the thing that really drew me to that, that initial like, oh, I have something, somebody wants it. And now they're buying it from me in order to get that. Um, So that was kind of like the path that I was on. I didn't really kind of know what it was that I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to have that thrill every day. Um, And so fast forward like 15 years (laughs) that, uh, that in, you know, going to college, uh, becoming a chef, going to culinary school, doing all of that. And then then working in those places and seeing those things. And like you said, making notes of like, oh, I wouldn't do it this way. I would do it this way. And continuing to accumulate those notes over, you know, your course of life until you got to a point where you're like, I think I can do this. Like, I'm just as smart as anybody else that's doing this. I might as well go out and do this on my own. And I think that was the real key of I found myself being very making other people very profitable and not benefiting myself in that. And then that was the real like uh, light switch to me to go out and aggressively try and find something that I wanted to do and call my own and and plug my skill set into working for myself. And did you go straight into owning a restaurant or was there an intermediary step? Because owning a restaurant is a big, expensive deal. Yes, it is. Uh, Yeah, I I worked for a catering company in my early 20s that I absolutely loved. And one came available for sale and I had purchased it and kind of re-tweaked some of their initial ideas, used their client base, maybe made a different, a, a similar product, but maybe just tweaked it to my likings and it was successful, which was great. And that's what spawned going into having an actual brick and mortar place. So I think that's a great idea whenever possible to buy an existing business because you have all the structures and the systems set up. I, of course, went into business because I was fired. (laughs) Well, but I was in the same position as you were, Matthew. I was sick and tired of earning my bosses, uh, literally millions and millions of dollars. And then I was not paid a bonus. I had to share it amongst the other vice presidents because, you know, after all, I was a woman with no kids and it wasn't fair that I got it. So I said, you know what? I'm, I'm done. And, uh, Anyway, I left and started my own business immediately. It was a services business as I started as a marketing consultant. 
I, and it was, it was just, it was easy. I, I had no, I, when I was by myself, I just had to do it. So I, I didn't have that long drawn out, well, I'm going to plan it and stuff like that. It was, I picked up the phone on Monday and said, I'm looking for clients. I love, Ronnie, your comment about the idea of buying a business, because I actually, um, uh, I'm a national um, a support around the SBDC for franchising. I love franchising for that reason, because it can mitigate risk. But one thing I've learned about franchising is how strong the brand is. So here's my question. While we're transforming our idea into a business, do we also transform ourselves into an entrepreneur? And how important is personal brand? Super important. I'd say personal brand is super important. But here's an interesting thing about franchising. I think franchising is great if you're going to buy yourself a job. Because quite frankly, you're not going to get rich if you have a Taco Bell. If you have 10 Taco Bells, mm-hmm. you are going to, you're an entrepreneur. And so I love franchising and I'm trying to move my business in that direction. I plan on either franchising or licensing because that's where the money is, baby. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to be delivering service forever. But a personal brand, I think, is very important because that's what people think they're buying when they're working with you. So a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't like to sell myself. None of us are for sale. We are not for sale. However, the idea <laughs> of us is what people think they are buying. So it's very important that we are completely consistent and that we manage our brands, our personal brands, so that people can trust us. I like both, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm a firm believer in the, the franchise model, but also the I'm going to go blaze my own trail and this is what <laughs> I'm going to do. They both have their merits, I think. Mm-hmm. And blazing your own trail can be fun and scary. <laughs> Explosive. Yeah, very much so. And there are lots of you know, the peaks and valleys are really high, whereas I feel like in a franchise, uh, they're maybe a little more not so volatile. So in those first couple of years when you both were building your business, how did you deal with the setbacks? Because there's always ups and downs, good months and bad months. Some of us <laughs> may have turned to the bottle, it seems, <laughs> according to the, the gestures I'm seeing here. Easy I, when you own the restaurant. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, my parents were uh, entrepreneurs, and so I knew. And my first month was fantastic. My second, third, fourth, and fifth months were absolutely great. So I invested that money because I knew it couldn't last forever. You have to save some when you're not when you're an entrepreneur, so you don't get to have a big bonus every month when you have a great month. And I think that takes a lot of self control, you know, unless you come from an entrepreneurial background. But, but it's a surprise to a lot of people. I equate it to. Uh Unfortunately, I didn't have a market plan. I didn't have anything. I seriously turned on the open sign and said, I hope somebody comes through the door. And that's the God's honest truth. So I'm more of a uh, jump in the pool and think I can swim instead of uh, a lot of maybe the, the sheer planning portion to it. I did have skills in order to do it, but attracting the people was obviously scary. But I will say in the the little milestones of greatness in your own personal business, I say this one all the time and I truly still believe it. The first $500 day that I had was like, oh my God, I'm going to make it. Like that was the day that I knew that maybe we had something that would possibly catch on that other people would talk about and bring more people to us. So I really feel like those milestones are the things to get you over the pitfalls of the day-to-day kind of operations and look towards those. And what I, what I love hearing from both of you is um, you both got to where you need to be one with, you know, marketing plan, of course, and you did it without a marketing plan, but you got there. So 
I still want to sort of step back because I'm all about the details is in the concept around marketing plan. If we were going to build a brand, let's say I was building a personal brand and I was going to use social media. What would I use? Would I use Instagram? Would I use Twitter? Would I use Facebook? Would I use, you know, LinkedIn? Would I use all of them? Would I just just saturate it? And just how would I take my personal brand and what are some of the platforms that I would use or perhaps not use any of them? You would use the platforms that would be significant for your marketplace because there's no point in being, say, on Instagram if your market's not on Instagram. And really, your uh, brand is about how people see you, what they believe about you, and what you represent. And so it has to be essentially aimed at somebody. Awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I like all of the platforms, at least in my industry, because um, I think you get great visuals with people taking photos of food and posting it and People saying, oh, we had this great time or, you know, anything along those lines and using each one of the different social media networks in order to go out and do that. I think they are all very valuable, at least for my industry. So one of the things I heard then was to, even though you hope for the best, also plan for worst case, have that pool of money to handle the expenses if you don't have a great sales month and also remember to pay the taxes because (laughs) you You can delay payment for many vendors, but not to the government. I saw that took my dad down one year because he did that. And then the other thing is when you are having a bad month and you need to do something to bring the customers to you, do you have any stories that you might like to share of something that you tried that really brought people to you when you needed them to come? Uh, Sure. It was the beginning of 08, which was the start of the downturn of the economy. And a lot of people in the neighborhood were shutting off their cable first. And to be honest with you, we said, oh, we should probably have cable. And (laughs) we did that and uh, started showing Blazer games and people started to come in for Blazer games and tried our food. And that is what really helped us kind of get through the very lean times is to have those days where people wanted to not only come together, but they wanted to meet in that spot to watch that, to all have that uh, synergy around them of watching the game. And then that's what kind of helped us. What I appreciate too about that story is the bravery that it takes when you don't have the sales you need and you're strapped for cash. I'm imagined you were, you still signed up for that cable. You took a risk. Yes, definitely. I didn't have the money for it either. (laughs) So I didn't have it in the first place, but that was, that was the real pigeonhole that I think that we needed to fill in order to have the community come in and, and start to feel a part of what we were trying to portray. I think one strategy that a lot of small businesses overlook is the recurring payment membership sort of model. Those can be tremendously profitable. I mean, most of us are only paying Netflix, what, eight bucks a month or something. They got a lot of money. (laughs) And there are many different ways to create a super valuable membership in the majority of businesses. And that can generate a lot of cash and consistent cash so that can see you through the tougher times. Awesome. So I'm going to ask a a situation. A lot of people I've noticed really want work-life balance. So they're choosing businesses that relate to their lifestyle. And many of them are actually working out of their home. How do they discipline themselves though? Because when you're in a job, you're given specific requirements, you're working with everyone. How do you avoid doing the laundry when you have to make a sale? (laughs) So a lot or do of people, you do both? <laughs> <laughs> so you're working at home and you're working for a lazy, crazy boss who'd rather watch Oprah or is worried about the dirty house. I don't know how other people do it. Uh, back in the day when I had my home office, 
I had uh, the luxury of having a single room that I could define specifically for my office, and that was it. I still I have been out of the uh, out of my home office for over a decade, but I still have my home office when I need it. But I can close the door when I'm done. I can also close the door while I'm in there, which is extremely helpful to me because I feel like I've created a visual space that says this is work. And for me, that works. And I think a lot of people are trying to work all over the place. They're trying to work on the couch or at their kitchen Mm -hmm. table or in the backyard. And that sounds really very glorious. (laughs) However, for most of us, it doesn't work because the majority of us lack the discipline that it takes to really focus on work and get the hard stuff done. Brian Tracy calls it eating the frog. He says, you got to do something you hate every day. It's like eating a live frog. And if you have to eat a live frog every day, the best time to do it is the first thing in the morning. And I absolutely agree. You got to eat that frog first thing in the morning. So for me, first thing in the morning, it's a sales call. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Agree. <laughs> I know that it's it's hard to self-motivate some days in order to, yeah, eat the frog. Definitely. I mean, that's a, a yeah, that's great. I'd never heard that before, but I feel that way just about every day of getting up. I mean, I think it's like today's the day I'm going to go eat the frog. So, yeah, I, f- I feel it's like also people need to remember that the buck does stop with them when they're the owner and entrepreneur. And so if you let stuff slide, the only person that it slides onto is you. That is a very... I find a driving factor of like, oh, I need to go do this or I need to make sure that I take care of this today. Yeah. One last uh, question for either of you. When do you quit your job? Is it when you've reached the amount of salary you're making? So if you are moving into this, you are an entrepreneur, is there a certain time where you would tell a client it's time to let go and go full time into your business? So do you see that as a challenge? And when would you quit your job if it was time to move into a business full time? I've worked with a number of clients who are in that position. And what we've done is decided how much revenue has to be coming in and what sort of savings they want to have for their business before they can quit their job. And usually we have sort of a step plan. So it's uh, so that they're going to try to create X amount of revenue and then create X amount of money in the bank. And then they will cut back their work hours to three quarters and then to half time and then to one quarter and then maybe to a little bit of consulting because I don't want people to feel scared. I know that's really tough and that causes people to give up and give up their dream, which I think is one of the saddest things in the world. Mm -hmm. So I like to have that sort of sequential model where people can kind of ease into it, but always feel financially covered. Uh, I was kind of in Ronnie's shoes. I did get fired and had to go do it as well. So I don't feel like I have the, that same background as far as like scaling into it. It was, oh, today's the day I'm starting. I can't imagine anyone firing you, but I'll go with that comment. Uh, no one said startups are easy to manage, but luckily you don't have to manage them alone. We'll talk resources and mentors when we get back. Are you ready to turn your idea into cash? Or are you already launched and hitting roadblocks? Join PRP each Friday at 1 p.m. for Biz 503, the talk show for startups and small businesses. Welcome back. I'm Kedma O, co-hosting with Leslie Hildula for today's episode of Biz 503. There are a lot of jigsaw pieces to put together when it comes to building a business. And in Portland and Vancouver, there are a lot of folks to help. Rejoining us in studio to talk support networks and strategies is Dave Barcos of the Bridge Incubator, Matthew, owner of Nepo 42, um, restaurant owner and instructor of PCC. Welcome back. Thank you. Great. Thanks to be back. So the subject of networking has come up today. How important do you think networking is 
in the different types of businesses that you two work in? Yeah, I think, um, I think networking is really important. I think the challenge is most people don't know how to do it. Um, networking is, uh, is not about going to an event where there aren't people that are sharing some sort of, uh, common interest, um, and trying to give out as many cards as you can because you want to build a list. Networking is, is really going to an event where you have an affinity or some sort of, um, some sort of connection to the, what the event is and what's being talked about. And then finding a few key people that are interested in connecting with you and finding out more about what you do. An event where your target customers are, is that what you mean? It could be that. It could be if you're interested in 3D printing, that you're going to a 3D printing enthusiast group. How about you, Matthew? Is networking a part of owning a restaurant? Uh, I like to say yes in our instance because I feel like our place is very much a neighborhood spot and that network that you're in is the neighborhood. So it's being involved in what's going on and being an active participant in the neighborhood and helping the neighborhood out when they ask for a donation for a school or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I know this will probably burn me later, but Anytime anybody asks for a donation, we 100% give it to them because we feel that it is important to give back to the community because they are coming and joining and having a time with us. So I also have a sense that networking is an important part of attracting the kind of employees that you need as a restaurant owner because you can't do it all. No. Yes. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not a big fan of like poaching another employee from another restaurant but if you find out it's their last day and they're like oh today's my last day oh hey here's a business card we love coming to this place because you're here please come to our place because we think that you would be a great asset or benefit to our place you know and as i'm listening to the networking so i'm imagining uh, a a new individual entrepreneur is going to a, a traditional networking event what happens if you're an introvert though how do you coach them because extroverts we can meet and talk to everyone introverts, it can be quite challenging. So I'd be curious to know, first of all, where do you place yourself? Are you extrovert or introvert or both? And then how would you coach someone to work through that if they were an introvert? I actually am an introvert by nature, but I've learned to be an extrovert. So I think there's a little bit of you have to just get out there and do it. Depending on where you're going, uh, if you go to an event, people will come up and talk to you. It is the purpose of the event. So I wouldn't feel the burden to go up and specifically talk to people. Uh, I actually went to a marketing event one time, uh, one of the larger ones in town, and this woman came up to me and she said, you're my 10 o'clock. And, and I was a little taken back. Yeah, okay. I was a little bit taken back. And what she said is, oh, no, that's my strategy. She said, I look around and turn around. I'll say, you know, I need a three o'clock. And she turns around to her three o'clock from on a mm-hmm. clock dial, turns around to her three o'clock. The first person that catches her eye, she walks up and talks to. And her opening line to talk to that person is, you're my three o'clock. Wow. That's a pretty extrovert skill to do, but I remembered it and it's a great opener. So I'm going to start using that one because I'm an extrovert extrovert (laughs) and I think that that would be an amazing icebreaker initially, but also, you know, a good uh, foot in the door to, to chat with somebody. Yeah. So what about community resources? One of the things I've noticed is that small business entrepreneurs, whether startup or in business, they don't realize what's available in the Portland, Vancouver area to help. So what have you guys seen that's been really helpful for people? The community-based organizations that are out there, like the PDC, I mean, they're a great resource when looking for a building or maybe you happen to be in one of their zones where they're trying to 
uh, put some money into it. Uh, the SPDC is great, obviously. So um, by PDC, you meant the Portland Development Commission? Yes. Yep. So that's city of Portland only? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that there have to be those in other communities that they're trying to do those uh, and other cities, but also in your hyper-local, uh, in your business district, if you have a brick-and-mortar place or maybe in your specific town, you'll have a business incubator, and those are great resources to go uh, hit up. Like at 42nd Avenue Business Association, right? Mm-hmm. You guys have a really active group there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Michael DeMarco, yeah, mm-hmm. he does great work out there. And yeah, Dave? Yeah, I think uh, that's kind of, you know, one of, the, one of the differences. I work very heavily inside of startups and startup, again, is looking for a business model. They're trying to figure something out. And so the bigger connectors um, that can become catalysts for that community are the events, are things uh, like TechFest Northwest that was just this past week. Finding connections inside of meetups. We've got a great event coming up for people uh, as a startup weekend in Vancouver on June 2nd and through the 4th. So largely being event-based because some of those larger structured organizations, they may be able to help with funding. They may be able to help with certain connections. But when we talk about high impact businesses in the technology world, sometimes those don't play out and you can get too far ahead of yourself, like a business, you know, leading you towards helping with a business plan. I know there are resources for business education too, for people who are learning how to be an entrepreneur, of course. Where Kedman and I work at the Small Business Development Center, we of course think what we have is phenomenal, but there are <laughs> other do. also great resources. Uh, Miso, uh, Miso is another organization. Mercy Corps Northwest, PSU's Business Outreach Program are some of the other ones. Awami, Awami, Hispanic Chamber, Metropolitan, yeah, Chamber yeah. of Commerce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I- so I think one of the things that I see in successful entrepreneurs is that willingness to say, "I don't know everything." And what's new that I can learn? What what else do I need to know? But I want to just ask a question because Leslie's bringing up a good point. I'm going to go with this. I don't believe we lack resources in this community. I think we're oversaturated. So in that context, how do we find the right one? That's a good point. Um, I think you're right. Some of those resources are amazing if you have the need that that organization does. I think you have to become a student, in my case, of, of startup, right? And so starting to look at the trajectory of an early stage business, how do you build out the core of your product enough to test it and find resources that are going to help you do that? It's not when you know you have a web service or a concept that you go to an agency as a resource and have them step up and design your website for you, right? You can get too far ahead of yourself. So I think becoming a real student of the path that you need to follow and finding resources that plug into that. So one of the things that I'm curious about, uh, because we're talking about resources, is your opinion on having a mentor. And I'm also curious to know if you've had mentors in the past, can you share what they have provided you? And I will fully disclose, I am where I am today because I've had some incredible mentors that have guided me. And without them, I would have, I don't know if I would have made it. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I'm a big believer in mentors as well. Um, My greatest mentor recently passed away. And I feel really bereft, even though he'd been my mentor for almost 20 years, I thought I would outgrow it. And the way he helped me was to give me feedback, you know, loving, gentle, but very clear feedback when I was off base or when I needed to do something different. And there are a lot of mentors out there. There are even mentor programs. So I would encourage everybody to find a mentor. And a mentor isn't particularly a coach. It's not someone that you may have to pay. It's someone who's been there and done that and who is willing to extend their legacy by helping you. I definitely feel the same way. There are 
three or four chefs that I worked for for a number of years that I feel like I still hear their voice in the back of my head and I still am very much connected to them where I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I have a problem with this, blah, blah, blah. And they currently own multi-unit places, so it's nice to have that resource. Yeah, I think mentorship is vital. Um, I don't think there's always a lot of understanding around what a mentor is. And I love the definitions that you guys are, um, Ronnie, that you say that somebody with that tough love that's going to you know, give you some really honest feedback. Um, it's one of the things we work on at The Bridge uh, is we'd call it an active advisory where we're actively working with those people in a way to give them some of that guidance, give them some of the the visibility that we have through our expertise, um, but also sometimes roll up the sleeves and help them perform certain tasks as they need to do. And that's not often the case. I think one of the things about startup and entrepreneurship right now is that there is a huge amount of successful people that are on the journey as well as successful in the journey that are willing to help early stage people really figure it out. So I think that's that a great resource a we have. question also that I had was, how do I, if my resources are very tight, which they almost always are for most people, navigate the world of consultants, people who make a living mm. off of helping a new person get going. And sometimes that new person doesn't launch, but that person has made a living if you catch my drift. Matthew, do you got some comments? Because you're the one person in the room who doesn't work as a consultant. <laughs> uh yeah, definitely. I, I sat in on a meeting one time with a gigantic restaurant group and they said, the consultant says, how much money do you want to make? So they wrote it at the bottom of the line and then they went backwards through their P&L and said, well, this is how much money you need to sell. And that was their consulting. And so it was very interesting to see that, to be like, well, of course, yeah, if I had a million dollars in sales or $5 million in sales, sure, I could make X amount of money, but I don't have two sales yet. So, <laughs> you know, like that interaction I thought was very interesting to uh, take a look at. Yeah, go ahead. Have we mentioned SCORE yet? Mm -mm. I love SCORE. Um, maybe, uh, so it's a service corps of retired executives. executives. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of them can be excellent mentors and, and uh, free consultants for small businesses. I think it's a great place to start because they're usually very plugged into the services and resources that are available. And I have found, I had a counselor at SCORE once and he was great. He told me a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know. It was extremely helpful. I agree. And there are consultants working there too. So, yeah. uh, so there's, there's, yeah, I SCORE think can be an amazing resource. I think some of the challenges is I would say, how big is your idea? You mm -hmm. want to find a way we've talked a lot about startup and small business and score is phenomenal with some of their resources to be able to help coach new businesses in what they need to do and gain perspective. I think when you deal with high impact and scalable businesses, sometimes those, that advice doesn't work as well. Well, thank you very much. I guess we have to wrap this up. It's been a lot of fun. Matthew Froze from NEPA 42, Dave Barcos from the Bridge, Bridge in Vancouver, incubator. but you work with clients all over and Ronnie Noyes from the DIY Marketing Group. You also work with clients all over too. Yes, right? I do. Fantastic. Well, next week on Biz 503, we'll hit on topics essential to most startup founders, patents, copyrights, and trademarks. Thanks for joining us today for Biz 503 on PRP and have a great weekend. Support for Biz 503 comes from Imix Law Group, offering trusted legal advice to startups and small businesses. Imix for business advice.